Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, November 21st, 2013. Man, <laughs> this program did not turn out the way I expected it to at least 24 hours ago. You know, a lot of times you got things blocked out. You know where you want to go. Today's program, we're heading in directions I did not expect. Details forthwith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Okay, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. We In today's program, I have no clue how the timing is going to work on it. it. This is one of those things where I made a decision um, to basically lift out uh, one segment that I had planned for today and plug in a different one due to kind of the... Um, how do I put this? The um, urgency of the story, if you would. <clears throat> so, uh, and then we've got the whole, oh man, Secrets of the Bible Revealed Part 2. Man, what a train wreck that was. Okay. It... <laughs> This is one of those times where if it feels like I'm strapped to a rocket and I can't get off, well, it's because I'm strapped to a rocket and I can't get off. We're going to go with the program, and I have no idea how this is going to work out. So let me kind of fill you in on what we're going to do. We have a Mark Driscoll update. Uh, Mark Driscoll today was interviewed on uh, Janet Mefford's uh, program and uh, talking about his new book, Resurgence. Now, I've read the book. And one of the things I was completely unaware of until um, until I heard from uh, Paula Coyle and Ingrid Schleter uh, that uh, there's a plagiarism question uh, regarding uh, resur- the Resurgence book that uh, – and oh, man – that I, I've, I'm like being brought up to speed, but apparently Janet Mefford on her program, she's completely up to speed on this, and she interviewed Mark Driscoll today and and confronted him regarding these allegations that he just whole cloth stole some stuff from somebody else, I think Dr. Peter Jones. And uh, we're going to listen to that portion of uh, Janet Mefford's interview because Driscoll, no sooner is, you know, does Mefford, you know, ask the tough question that Driscoll turns it back on Janet and accuses her of having a bad day. And the exchange starts to degenerate from there to the point where Driscoll hangs up on Janet Mefford. 
Yeah. So what we'll do is we will we will take a listen to that. Now, the, the, you know, plagiarism claims are not to be taken lightly, especially with somebody as popular as uh, Mark Driscoll. Now, I've got other issues with Driscoll's book, and I've you know I've aired just the beginning of that. Uh, you know, here, uh, you know, was it last week or the week before? I think it was last week. I, you know, of course, I'm, you know, I'm creeping decrepitude has crept upon me and, you know, the memory isn't what it used to be. But, um, you know, I, I did kind of lay out what I thought was fascinating hypocrisy on the part of Mark Driscoll. So what we'll do first half of this hour is take a listen to that interview. So we'll do a full-blown Mark Driscoll update. Uh, take a listen to that uh, interview with Janet Mefford up to the point, you know, where, well, actually we'll start at the point where Mefford changes the subject and goes directly after Driscoll talking, you know, basically accusing him of not really giving credit where credit is due. Driscoll turns the guns on her. The And you, you, like I said, the, the interview degenerates from there to the point where Driscoll will actually hang up on Janet Mefford. So we'll take a listen to that because I think it's an important story. Um, why do I think it's an important story? Because Driscoll continues to make some very mm, fascinating missteps. Uh, missteps that basically belie, to me, a, a character issue as well as a theological issue on his part. So I think it's worth passing along and uh, let you draw your conclusions. And I would point you to Janet Mefford's uh, program uh, from today, November 21st, uh, you know, where she talks, you know, she, you know, after he hung up with her, she goes on to uh, talk about what, uh, what happened and why this is, you know, an important thing from her point of view, which I think is fascinating. And the fact that he hung up on her, does not bode well. And, of course, I know that, uh, you know, because Mark Driscoll is who Mark Driscoll is, that he and his um, team are spinning, are already working up a spin to, uh, you know, to explain, uh, you know, why he hung up. And I'm sure it'll be something along the lines of, well, everybody knows he was suffering from a flu and he wasn't feeling good. And, and you know, I'm sure they're, they'll come up with some excuse. But uh, we want to be ahead of that so that you can know what's going on before his team is actually able to spin their excuse. Um, after that, we'll take a break. I have, again, I have no clue how the timing is going to work on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. When we come back from the break, what we will do is we will uh, listen to portions of um, part two of Secrets of the Bible Revealed, the latest History Channel attack on the Bible. But this I think this is probably the more important aspect of it is is that I'm going to basically key you in to the fact that part two of Secrets of the Bible Revealed lays out the cards as far as the ideological game or the goal of what this program is really all about. And um, it's extremely, extremely dangerous. And so I will uh, play for you the relevant segments uh, from uh, you know secrets of the Bible revealed, so that you can understand what's really going on here is that the goal is to get all of the religions of the world to work together towards global peace. That's the um, the goal, and that's not a good thing. This is extremely, extremely dangerous, and the rhetoric that they engage in to kind of tear down um, some con you know some basic concepts. Uh, that are laid out biblically in order to build up their alternate ideology. Um, very dangerous. It borders on, um, well, you, you're all familiar with Holocaust deniers, right? Um, this borders on something very much akin to Holocaust deniers. And 
very dangerous stuff, uh, challenging, challenging the uh, you know the the historical claims of the Jews on the land of Canaan. Uh, you know, basically saying, hey, there's there's no real evidence that uh, uh, that the Jews actually have a valid claim on the land. This is very dangerous stuff that we're dealing with. And then in hour number two, we'll switch gears and uh, we'll be doing a sermon review. Um, on the story of Peter walking on the water and, and uh, kind of the quintessential bad, me-centered um, look at that story. And uh, one of the listeners on my Facebook wall came up with a great metaphor that I'm going to be stealing and moving, you know, <laughs> stealing and using uh, in, the, in the future, that a lot of these seeker-driven sermons, they're the sermonic equivalent of a selfie. Uh, you know, a selfie apparently is, you know, you take a photograph of yourself. So that's a selfie. I mean, social media has given us, given us this wonderfully narcissistic idea of the selfie. Now I've taken selfies before, you know, this is what you do. And, uh, but uh, the uh, seeker driven sermons, because of their twisting of scripture and putting the emphasis on you rather than on Christ, uh, sermonically, you know, from a homiletic point of view, this is the, this is a, a, a theological selfie, and I think that's a great way to put it. So we have got a lot, a, a lot of ground to cover today. And again, I have no idea how the timing is going to work. Nor, and, and again, if it doesn't work out, I apologize. It's just because literally at the last minute, I uh, yeah, I made the decision to. Uh, swap out uh, what I had <clears throat> planned and plug in this uh, Mark Driscoll update. So since we're doing a Mark Driscoll update and a full-blown one at that, um, that's going to require us to uh, play our Mark Driscoll update music, which is this. Here we go. Don't hear God's word no more. The pastor says we don't feed no sheep, so get busy and amuse those goats. Don't be lazy, you're here to satisfy the leader's God-given vision supreme. If you dare to question him, well, there'd certainly be a scene. Look out. Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off, and another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey. He's gonna get you too. Another one's off the bus. One by one, people disappeared, never to be seen again. I thought this whole darn thing was a joke, but I changed my mind when I saw the pastor jump on the bus, tear out screeching down the street. People were getting squashed like bugs and piled up like dead feet. Look out! Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off. And another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey, they don't care about you. Another one's off the bus. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. 
There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus, they got to get run over. There are people who want to take turns driving the bus, they got to get thrown off. Because <laughs> they want to go somewhere else. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. Another one's off the bus. That's our Mark Driscoll update music, which, by the way, I should make a note here. He's never publicly apologized for the statements that we feature in the middle of this song. Never once has he repudiated anything that he's said. Just want to let everybody know that. Now, what we're going to be playing here, this is from today's episode of uh, Janet Mefford's uh, program. And uh, we're going to dive into the portion where Mefford is, she's interviewing him regarding his book, Resurgence. And um, she's going to change the subject and basically talk about uh, Driscoll plagiarizing ideas from somebody else. Let's listen in. Here we go. Right. We do face those sorts of challenges. Now, it's interesting. I'm glad that you mentioned Dr. Jones because, as people will know, he is the foremost evangelical scholar on the rise of neopaganism, has coined the terms twoism and oneism, which you mentioned in your book. Now, I was reading your book in preparation for the interview, and when I came across this section on the new paganism, I was a little interested to note that you didn't quote him and you didn't footnote him. You have a footnote after the first sentence where you mentioned twoism and oneism, and it says, see, for example, Truth Exchange and Peter Jones' book, One or Two. But then you go on for several more pages, and you never footnote him. Why? Um, I, Peter Jones is actually a friend of mine. I've had dinner with him a lot. His wife is really great, too. She is a really smart, um, great gal. In my book, Doctrine, I talk a lot about his concepts. In this book, I took his big idea and worked it out through the cultural implications, but I wasn't working specifically from his text, but uh, I think Peter would tell you I love him a lot. We're good friends, and I've learned a lot from him. Most of what I learned from him was actually sitting down over meals and him talking and me listening, um, and I should have been taking notes. That would have been a little easier to footnote. Right, except don't you think that it's important when you're using somebody else's material that you should footnote the person? Yeah, and I did mention Peter Jones. Go see these two books, and this is where it's all at. Well, yes, yeah, so you haven't. I've, interv- and I've yeah. interviewed Peter Jones online, and I've run his blogs, and I've had him speak at conferences. And I mean, I, I, I certainly love and appreciate him. And and if I if I made a mistake, then I apologize to Dr. Jones, my friend. I, I love him, I appreciate him, and that was not my intent for sure. Well, yeah, because you did, and I'm I'm mentioning this because I think it's really important when you have this endnote number five under chapter two. You say, see, for example, TruthExchange.com or Peter Jones in his book. You don't even cite a page number. And it trouble it troubles me though it troubles me though Mark because I've read Peter Jones I know Peter Jones I'm going to be going out to his think tank for the third year this year and I'm reading his material and this is his intellectual property and you don't give him any credit for it 
I, I take his big idea, and then I talk about the ways that it works itself out and the cultural issues that I'm addressing. And what I would say is, you're being accusatory and unkind. And I would say, ask. Yeah, there we go. Let's. Yeah, she's being a hater. Yeah, there you go. You, you listen. Um, Janet apparently doesn't understand this. You can't question or challenge a vision casting leader. I mean. If you do that, then you are the problem. See, he's the vision casting leader. You can't challenge or question him. If you do that, you're a hater, and the problem is you. So now um, <clears throat> Driscoll has gotten – he's thrown the – you know, taken the gloves off at this point, basically accused her of being grumpy. Mm-hmm. Let me back this up so that we can hear this in context because I just think it's absolutely fascinating – uh, just the hubris and the um, the tactic, which is so predictable among these seeker-driven leader types. Let's continue. That it works itself out in the cultural issues that I'm addressing. And what I would say is you're being accusatory and unkind. And I would say ask Dr. Jones if what he thinks. I mean, I, I, I love Peter. I respect Peter. Like I said, Peter's a friend of mine. And, and I've been very public about how much I have learned from him. But I, I thought, um, man, I thought we'd have a better interview than this. It seems like you're having sort of a grumpy day. Oh, I'm not having a grumpy day. The problem that I'm seeing here, I was actually really excited to talk to you about the book. In all honesty, Mark, as a Christian, because I have the same concerns you do about cultural Christianity going away and real Christianity needing a revival. Let's and I, talk about that and not a footnote. Let me say I mean, one. Let me say one other thing, though. It just, if if you don't mind, um, and I'm not trying to be unkind to you, but there is another section from page 185 to 189 where you go back to oneism there's no footnote at all to peter jones and at the end you talk about sex as the pagan sacrament of oneism i mean that's directly from his book he has a god of sex book where he has a chapter entitled homosexuality the sexual sacrament of religious paganism this is not your intellectual property i mean this is not just unethical i think i think this is something you could be sued under under copyright law for intellectual property i'm really concerned from the legal aspect for tyndale house I don't know why you wouldn't footnote him if he's such a good friend. Maybe I made a mistake. I, 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 maybe I did, and I, I would have to go back. I, to be honest with you, I'm sitting here with a head cold and the flu trying to do you a favor, and I don't remember footnote on page 183. I thought we were going to talk about the decline of Christianity and the need for the gospel. So she's basically got him dead to rights, and you know, just literally lifting straight out of Peter Jones's uh, work – um, you know, concepts that he hasn't given proper credit to Peter Jones. Now, if this, if, if the resurgence book were, uh, you know, let's say a doctoral dissertation or a master's thesis, um, he would be in deep kimchi at this point. Plagiarism gets you kicked out of academic um, institutions. Um, and so she's bringing up a valid, valid point. And you know, on the while he's on the defensive, he's making sure to attack and impugn Janet Medford for daring to bring this up. We continue. And I think you're illustrating the big need for the book that tribes tend to fight over secondary issues, miss primary issues, and the result is infighting instead of evangelizing. I, I don't know how else to say it more clearly. I love you. You're my sister. I. Uh, and you want to ask what happened in the editing process? Did an editor miss a footnote? I, I don't know. What I would say is thanks for bringing it to my attention. I'll go double check. You've probably written and know that when you write a book, there's 27 edits and going back and forth, and maybe something accidentally got deleted or a mistake was made. And if so, I apologize for that. But I, I have in print in multiple of my books um, quoted, cited Peter Jones, love him, had him for dinner at my house. 
and he's my friend, and I've learned a lot from him, and I've been open and public about that. I mean, you can Google the well, interviews I've done with him on Resurgence and the yeah. ways that I talk about. He's been a great uh, friend. Well, of and that all the more reason then you should that you should have given him credit in that those fourteen pages. That's what is more. I think important to point out, it's not unkind or tribal to point out that you should be honest. I mean, you were re- That's correct. Honesty is not a tribal issue. Recently preaching a sermon, do not steal on the eighth commandment. And I'm thinking of Romans 2.21. If you're going to teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? Now you're saying it was. In- now notice she's picked up on the same thing I was picking up on regarding uh, Mark Driscoll from a couple of weeks ago. As I read the resurgence book, the thing that came to my mind is. Do you not preach to yourself? He's a hypocrite. That's the thing that keeps coming out as I read that book. The things that he's admonishing other people to do, he has not done. It's it's bizarre. You know, so now we've got a second voice pointing out that there's major hypocrisy on the part of Mark Driscoll, and that's Janet Mefford, uh, re, you know, regarding the things that he's written in, uh, and he's talking about. We continue, though. Inadvertent. Are you going to go back to Tyndale House? It was, House? Made, it was inadvertent, and I, okay. I will follow up on it. But yeah. see, what I think you're missing is um, there is a difference between making a mistake and committing a sin. And if I made a mistake, I want to make it right. But really, I mean, you boil, you're going to take the entire interview and find what you are critical of and the nail you're going to hammer so that your audience can see you hammer Mark Driscoll today. Mark Driscoll loves Jesus. Mark Driscoll loves you. Mark Driscoll's in the least, one of the least church cities in America preaching Jesus for 17 years, trying to see people get... Yeah, that, that's great, but that doesn't justify any of this. And it's not tribal to point it out. Saved. And I was hoping we could help others talk about, man, their kids are now going gay. Their kids are walking away from Christ. Their church is not doing very well. Things are not trending in our direction. And people are concerned. And how could we help them? How could we equip them? How could we love them? How could we serve them? I would rather talk about Jesus than Mark Driscoll. Well, I know, and and I would too, but I think it's an important thing. If we're going to talk about Christianity having a future, I think we not only need to be sound in our doctrine, but I think we also need to be sound in our holiness. And I think if we have wronged... Yeah, I mean, this is important too. I'm looking at your website here. You have a a, a frequently asked questions section on your website asking, if I use material from one of Pastor Mark's sermons, do I need to cite him as the source of that material? And the answer on your website is yes. If you don't cite him, you are plagiarizing. If you use content from one of Pastor Mark's sermons or from one of his books, you need to attribute the content, whether it is a quote or paraphrase, to Pastor Mark. And you're right about that. But now you're telling me 14 pages of somebody else's intellectual property was inadvertent. I have to take you at your word. Are you going to go back to the publisher and have them fix it? What I will do is double check with Peter Jones. See, you're not an intellectual property attorney or an intellectual property judge. You're rendering a verdict, and then you're trying to enforce a sentence. And what I would tell you is, I will check. I appreciate you bringing it to my attention. But insofar as taking your legal advice, I probably wouldn't do that right now. Oh, no, I'm not giving you legal advice. And and I'm not giving me orders in front of an audience. No, I asked you, are you going to go to Tyndale House and fix and have the book fixed? Well, what I will first do is I will go to Dr. Jones, my friend, and if I erred, apologize to him and then make an effort to fix it. Okay. I, I'm not a publisher, but I will make an effort to make it right if I if I got it wrong. Right. Okay. Well, that's, you know, fair enough. But I think it's a fair question to ask you. It's a public book. People are going to be reading it. You have an awful lot of people who follow you. And I think it's a fair question. I don't. I don't. I think it's, 
I think it's rude, and I think the intent behind it is not very Christ-like. But I'll, I'll receive it, and I'll try to receive it graciously and humbly. But I would. Yeah, you haven't really done that, though. Allow you to pretend to take a, a generous, gracious, moral gospel high ground. I, I would, I would not. Um, I would not just uh, give you a pass on that out of love for you because I want you to grow as well. And I think, um, I think. Yeah, clearly this shows that Janet Mefford is seriously lacking in her Christian sanctification. I don't think so, Mark. It's a good opportunity for you to grow as well. Well, I I fail to see how I've been unbiblical in asking you a straightforward question about the content of your book. I, I don't think we need to go ad hominem on me about it. You're you're the one who's going to have to answer. Great point, Janet. That's exactly what he's doing. Answer for this. It's it's not right what you did, Mark. It's not right he what you did. To ask me about the book, and we sure. started with John MacArthur and went to a footnote. It, you fourteen pages. Fourteen pages of no footnote and no page citation. Oh, there's a there's a footnote that says that it comes from Peter Jones' work. It says C for example. It doesn't have anything has specific from the book. Think tank and okay. classes at Westminster. His whole life has been dedicated to the issue of you know monism or oneism. Right, right. Well, I just think if he is such a good friend, and I think that that that's great that you guys are great friends. I think that you should have given him the credit. I think that's what a friend should do, and I. This is my point, Mark. We can have sound doctrine all day long, but if we don't act in a godly way, who's going to listen? And that applies to pastors. Right. And I mean, but that applies to me as a regular sheep, and it applies to you as a pastor. But you're more than a regular sheep. You're a, you've got a large audience, and the Bible says not many should presume to be teachers, and you've got a lot of people listening to you who are learning from you. Well, I'm not teaching. I tend to interview people and take calls, but a uh, fair point that, you know, you're certainly entitled to think that. I think you are on the right track as far as saying we need to do something about this culture, and I think that you are right in saying something's wrong. But I think that it's important when you're getting those ideas out that you do it in an upstanding way. And I, I really hope that you, you are going to fix this because I think it's the right thing to do, and I think it would be a good witness for everybody who's going to read and, uh, you know, look at the ideas in your book. Yeah, I'd I'd love to see Mark Driscoll actually publicly apologize and admit he's done something wrong. All right. I think we've lost him. That is Mark Driscoll. Yeah, Driscoll hung up on her. I'll leave it to you to um, interpret that any way you want. Um, You know, clearly there's two sides to the story. But I think Janet uh, brings up some very valid points and some questions. And I find it fascinating she keyed in on Driscoll's hypocrisy, which is exactly what I keyed in regarding Driscoll a couple of weeks, or well, maybe a week and a half, two weeks ago. I don't remember. It's, look it up in the archives. But I want to bring up one more example of Driscoll's hypocrisy and tie it back to the elephant room, too. In the book Resurgence, Pat, uh, uh, sorry, Driscoll talks about uh, the emergent church movement. And I find it fascinating what he said about them. Uh, let me um, let me read what he says in the Resurgence book. Then came the critique of postmodernism, talking, kind of giving us a flight over recent events within evangelicalism, which challenged many of the underlying assumptions of modernism, such as the existence of objective truth and morality that applies to all people, times, and places. Within evangelicalism, this led to a brief but noisy tribe 
called the Emergent Church, which was devoted to critiquing modern evangelism, particularly the megachurch phenomenon. I was at the early stages of of this development as a young pastor in the mid-1990s, though I quickly exited this push for postmodern ministry because I felt it held a low view of Scripture. It rapidly went apostate, denying the perfection and authority of Scripture, original sin, the death of Jesus for our sins, eternal condemnation and hell, the necessity of Jesus for salvation, and the sinfulness of homosexuality. And here's the important sentence. And as Judas did, this movement managed to find some rope and a tree. So what I find fascinating here is is that Driscoll has no problem saying that the emergent church was apostate. And he likens them to Judas and was happy to inform us in the book that, uh, that, like Judas, the emergent church found a rope and hung itself. Now, I find that fascinating. The reason I find it fascinating, again, is back on this key point. Driscoll has no problem pointing out other people's shortcomings, and I would agree with him that the emergent church is apostate. But what he's never done, what Driscoll has never done, is apologize publicly for his participation and role and role at Elephant Room 2 of trying to basically con the church into believing that T.D. Jakes is a Trinitarian. He's a Trinitarian, of course. He believes in God in three persons. If by persons you mean manifestations, which means he's a modalist. Driscoll's never apologized publicly for that. And yet he you know, has no, point, no problem pointing out that Catherine Jefford Shorey is an apostate and should apologize for the things she said regarding that, uh, that girl who was possessed uh, by a demon that Paul cast the demon out of. He has no problem pointing out the emergent church and you know, that they, he was happy that, that they found a rope like Judas and went and hung himself. But Driscoll doesn't – I mean, preacher, do you not preach to yourself? You have committed an egregious sin in Elephant Room 2 in trying to pass off T.D. Jakes as a Christian when he's not. And by your own metaphors and analogy, this is not a state border issue when it comes to T.D. Jakes. It's a national border issue. And so now, in the midst of all of this, something I'm very happy that uh, Janet Metford was able to actually tease out and ask him about, uh, you know, now we're come to find out that uh, Mark Driscoll may have actually plagiarized 14 pages of the book Resurgence from somebody's el- somebody else's work and not cited the source. I think there's, there's more to the story clearly that uh, needs to be uh, looked at, but it will be interesting to see how the story unfolds. I think what we're seeing with Driscoll is, is that, um, his character flaws, despite his um, efforts to whitewash them, uh, while the paint's starting to come off and chip and people are starting to pay attention and notice. What do you think? All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at piratechristian. Quick break. When we come back, we've got a full-blown update on the second installment of Secrets of the Bible Revealed from the History Channel. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. 
We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. These planes would give us passengers more legroom. Hey, let me help you with your luggage. Oh, thank you so much. What in the world do you have in these bags? Bricks. Bricks? I'm a door-to-door brick salesperson. I'm not even going to ask. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you have not already done so, please stow your carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you or in an overhead bin. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelts and make sure your seat back Tray tables are in their full, upright, and locked positions. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. In case y'all don't know me, I'm Mark Driscoll, and I'm going to be your pilot for today. Oh, dear. He looks more like a terrorist, if you ask me. If any of you passengers feel at any time that you could pilot this plane better than me, then you'll be swiftly thrown under the bus. I mean plane. As you may have noticed, there are also no parachutes on this flight. Which means, should you be thrown off the plane, that your landing will be unpleasant. We thank you for flying Mars Hill Air with us today. I guess it's time to take off, then. Well, let's just hope our flight to Boston will be nice and easy. Jersey anyway! That's it! God, please escort this man to the back of the plane for violent ejection. Hey! I have my rights! You can't do this to people! Oh, but I can! I can't believe that just happened! There's something seriously wrong with all of this. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh. Yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. It is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we are about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted two tin cans and a string. It's one of those communicated devicey thingies. Now you can talk to your friends of a long... Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. All right, we're back. Warning, beware of pastors who never admit they've done anything wrong when it's clear from the public record they've done something wrong. It's called hypocrisy. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute. You could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. That's right. Time for a Secrets of the Bible Revealed update. Here's our update music for that.
corner That's me in the spotlight I'm losing my religion Yeah, that's right. REMs, I'm losing my religion, which I think is a uh, perfect uh, choice for our Secrets of the Bible Revealed update music. Now, what we're going to be listening to are two segments from uh, yesterday's, last night's episode of Secrets of the Bible Revealed. We're going to listen to the beginning and we're going to listen to the end because when you put the two together, you can see what the ideological goal and end game is. Why would the History Channel uh, take all this time to spruce up and you know spiffify, if you would, uh, kind of pimp my uh, bad liberal argument that's already been debunked? Um, you know, take the time to really put a new spit shine on all these already completely shown to be fallacious liberal arguments against the Bible. Well, the answer is when you're attacking the Bible, you're not just attacking it because you want, you know, you don't like the Bible. It's because you got to get rid of the ideas that are revealed in God's word so that you can supplant them with your own. And I think we're starting to get an idea of what those other ideas that the History Channel is trying to promote are. You know, think of it this way. I, I, I think it was uh, Francis Schaeffer who pointed out in Christian Manifesto that the media is in the United States is the fourth branch of government. And so when the fourth branch of government is going to take all this time to attack the Bible, there's there's a political goal in mind, okay? And you're going to hear for yourself what that goal is. So Without any further ado, here's the opening from last night's Secrets of the Bible Revealed, and I'll explain what's happening along the way. Here we go. It is considered the most sacred place on earth, the Holy Land, the land of milk and honey, Zion. God promised that the descendants of Abraham would be the ones who would possess this land. It has also been carved up, subdivided, and fought over by three of the world's great religions for thousands of years. So the theme is the promised land. That's what they're going to be talking about. And they're going to purposely undermine undermine the uh, historical claims that the Jews received this land from God. That's what they're going to go after. And so that they can then replace it with something else. But let's listen. Let's keep listening. You've got all sorts of people fighting over this piece of land. But was the area known as the promised land really given by God to a chosen people? Really given by God to a chosen people? The answer that they're going to come out with is no, nah, nah. And is the proof really found in the pages of the Old Testament? Of course not. Once a spot is deemed sacred, it's always sacred. It is one of the most important books ever written. Its contents have been studied, debated, and fought over for thousands of years. But does the Bible also contain secrets? Secret prophecies? Secret characters? Yeah, we'll talk about some of those secrets on our next installment, but let's continue. Secret texts? Now, for the first time. 
extraordinary series will challenge everything we think, everything we know. That's the goal. Challenge everything you think and everything you know about the Bible because they're going to replace it with something new, something different. And everything we believe about the Bible. Israel, 2013. As far as its citizens are concerned, this is sacred ground. And Jerusalem, its largest city, is its epicenter, its heart. It is the place where a boy named David became a king, and where the mighty Solomon built his great temple. Jews are not the only people who view this land as sacred. For Christians, it is the land of Jesus, the birthplace of their faith. And for Muslims, it is the land of Muhammad, the place from where he ascended into heaven. For this reason, the holiest place on earth is also one of the most contested the most fought over and the most dangerous. You're talking about a small, narrow piece of land, less than 150 miles. Some would compare it to the size of New Jersey. It's not a huge area, but it has attracted tremendous attention by many cultures uh, over, over the centuries. God made the promise that this land was flowing with milk and honey, this sort of paradise on earth. It's sort of ironic that for the past at least thousand years, people have fought brutally and viciously over it. Now that's Candida Moss. Okay, so here's the setup. I mean, oh, we got this tiny little New Jersey-sized strip of land that everyone's claiming that is their sacred turf, and everyone's fighting over it. Oh, this is terrible, and it's supposed to be the promised land. People are supposed supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey and peace and all that, but it's not peaceful. See, oh, well, yeah, I guess maybe, huh, I wonder why. Well, maybe God didn't really promise it. That's where they're going to go. We continue. The Holy Land we know today is riddled with bullet holes. Divided by barbed wire and patrolled by armed military. Conflict has marred the enduring beauty of this landscape. With the scars of war and bloodshed. But why? Some say the answer may be found in the very first pages of the Holy Bible. In what is commonly referred to as the Old Testament. According to the book of Genesis, God sent a great flood to wipe sin and corruption from the ancient world. When it was over, a merchant named Abraham was summoned by God to start a new kingdom on earth, a so-called promised land, where he and his descendants could thrive and live in peace and prosperity. 
Judaism began at a time when religions were connected to countries. And indeed, every country had its own God. The Jews were the first to believe in this omnipotent deity. And this omnipotent deity called upon Abraham. And he told him, leave this country and go unto a, a different land that I'm going to show you. And that land was the land of Canaan, which became the promised land, the land that we call Israel today. God tells Abraham that, that his descendants will possess the land between the river of Egypt and the Euphrates. Now that's Bart Ehrman, no friend of Christianity, arch enemy of it. And so it is now what we would think of today as the area of Israel and part of Egypt and part of Jordan, part of Syria. But a close examination of the Bible also reveals many surprising passages. Here, God orders his chosen people, the Jews, or Israelites as they were then known. Notice these are surprising passages. God's ordering the death of people. Well, God, God could never do that. To take control of the promised land, not by peaceful means, but by any means necessary. There were already people living in Canaan, uh, but uh, God promised that, that the descendants of Abraham would be the ones who would possess this land. God's commandment to the Israelites was not just to conquer the land of Canaan, but to slaughter every last inhabitant of the land. Yeah, that what a terrible God that is. Whoa, man, I that that's awful. I don't believe in that God. That's what the whole point of this is. Every man, woman, and child... Every ox, every goat, every farm, every blade of grass, the Lord says, has to be destroyed as an offering to God before the land can be purified and given to the Jews as their promised inheritance. Yeah, see, the God of the Old Testament, he can't really be real because he's ordered genocide. Notice God's the one on trial here. Did an almighty God really compel the Jews to a violent takeover of the land? And could this be the reason the land known as Israel remains so fought over even today? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. See, is this the reason why it remains fought over today? So the implication is we're going to challenge this whole idea of God, the God that would judge people in order, you know, Joshua and the people coming into the promised land to destroy Jericho and everybody in it and just, you know, devote them to destruction and stuff like that. This is the whole gist of episode two is to basically deconstruct and cast doubt on the Old Testament narrative, even to the point of basically saying, you know, listen, there's like there's. There's probably not even good archaeological evidence that the Exodus took place and that the Jews really even had, you know, a valid claim on, you know, the Holy Land. And what I find fascinating about the arguments that were put forward in episode two of Secrets of the Bible Revealed 
is a lot of the same rhetoric is the rhetoric that I've seen in other places, namely from the Muslim world. Uh-huh. You know, the Muslims have a stake in suppressing any historical archaeological evidence that would validate the Jews' claim to the Promised Land, which I find very interesting that the uh, History Channel would engage in, in basically those exact same types of arguments, and that's how this went. So what's the goal? What's the goal in all of this? Well, there is a goal, and that is is that they're going to basically say, maybe we've completely misunderstood what the Holy Land really is, what the Promised Land really is. And rather than having these different religions fighting and vying for control and possession of the promised land, maybe we've misunderstood what the real goal is that God was really promising regarding the promised land. And here's the end of episode two. So when you put the the front end and the back end together, you can see ideologically what it is they're trying to do. This is, you know, basically this is like Holocaust, Holocaust deniers. They're denying you know, a valid historical claim to the land for the Jews, and then allegorizing this whole idea of the promised land, envisioning it to be something completely different. And this, what you're going to hear, you should, if you're familiar with your Bible, you should hear some of the same themes that you hear regarding the end of the world and the eschatological texts in Daniel, as well as in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Listen, here we go. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all see themselves as the heirs to this land. As a result of that, people have fought brutally and viciously over it. And that's bad. We, we this, they've obviously this has got to stop. And massacre members of the other groups. The sort of competition over the Holy Land is sort of ironic because it's supposed to be paradise. Is it possible? that God's promise to Abraham of a homeland for the Israelites was not meant to be an actual geographical location. Is it possible? Did God really say? Yeah, because um, there's actual borders in the Old Testament regarding where the Holy Land is supposed Is it possible that we've just completely missed it all along, thinking it's a literal strip of land? Listen in some more. But a goal, a challenge... A place where the resolve of the Jewish people would be put to some kind of test. The fact that Israel is so fought over and so contentious in some ways makes it a perfect place for a promised land. As if God is saying, if you can work it out here, then you should be able to work it out everywhere else. The clue to the promised land is to understand it as God's testing ground of faith. And sometimes we're called to behave and act in ways that requires us to move outside of ourselves. And maybe one place that this can be done, God willing, is in the Holy Land. The Promised Land is also a state of mind. It's something that gives you hope for the future, and um, it, it gives you an identity and it gives you a sense of possession of the particular land, of your home. Perhaps God's real promise was not just to Abraham, but to all of humanity. 
and that the promise of a land of milk and honey, a promised land, was meant to be earned, not simply given. If so, then perhaps God's true gift will only be realized when all of the world's people put aside their differences and focus their belief not only on a holy land, but a holy world. A world as foretold in the pages of the Bible. Yeah, so... Um, it's not a holy land, a holy world. We're supposed to create peace on earth and make the holy land the holy world. And we're all holy people. All the religions of the world come together and work as one to envision this grand idea of world ecumenical syncretistic peace. That's what episode two of Secrets of the Bible Revealed was really all about. Get away from you know, a literal understanding of the Bible and all that kind of stuff and instead see the promised land as some kind of allegorical thing that uh, we're supposed to apply to the whole world. Yep. Can you say one world religion, one world... Uh, yeah, this... There's a there's an ideological agenda here, and it's not a good one. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. We come back, hour number two sermon review, a bad secret driven sermon. That misses the whole point of the story of Peter walking on the water. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. 
Oh, yay! I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. <laughs> Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh, thanks. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. I haven't told you anything about the sermon except for it's uh, the typical seeker-driven pablum misreading of the story of Peter walking on the water. Good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Tiffany Fellowship, Kansas City, Missouri. Barry Clare presiding. The name of the sermon is Out of the Boat. This is part two of a two-part Out of the Boat sermon series. And... I'll point out the uh, the Bible twisting along the way. And keep in mind, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. What we'll do is we're, this is another example of twisting God's word by not telling the whole story and getting to the punchline. It's the equivalent of trying to tell a joke without actually getting to the p- funny part. You don't know what the joke is about, then you don't know, you know, same thing here. And, of course, when you do that, in the way he's doing this, the emphasis will be all about you and your water walking. But the story of Peter walking on the water is not about you water walking or anything of the sort. So let me go ahead and uh, kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Barry Clare of Tiffany Fellowship and his sermon entitled Out of the Boat, Part 2. Here we go. Last week we looked at Peter's great out-of-the-boat experience. We were moved to hear the voice of Jesus call Peter to come out of the boat, face his tower of terror, and water walk to him. It truly is one of the most wonderful stories in the New Testament. Simon Peter takes a water walk with Jesus. Think about it. Outrageous. Outrageous. 
We believe that everything in the Bible is there for a reason. That's what this church believes. We believe in what we call the verbal inspiration of the scriptures. That means... Now I'm glad to hear this, but uh, we got a problem here. If you believe in the verbal inspiration of the scripture, then you understand that the way you're telling the story, you're skipping the punchline. And the punchline tells you who the story is about. It's really not about Peter. Everything in the scriptures are there for a reason. So, this water walk that Peter took is there to teach us some things. Today we finish the two-week study of this story by looking at Peter's great failure. Look at Peter's great failure. Today's message is entitled, Beginning to Sink. Beginning to sink. Let me give you one of my personal axioms. These are, are, this is a guiding truth that I've come to understand in my life. Okay, a guiding truth, a personal axiom. And I'll just share it with you this morning. We learn more from our failures than from our successes. Now, I'm not telling you you should go out and fail. Trust me, you don't have to work at failing. Nobody here has to, has to try to fail. In fact, you should try not to fail. Okay, but the truth is, listen to me, listen to me. We learn more from our failures than we ever learn from our successes. Because when we're successful, we tend to strut around going, look, look, look what I did. I'm awesome. <laughs> you know. So we learn more from our failures than from our successes. So today's message about Peter's epic fail is not a negative message. It's not a negative fa- message. We're going to learn and prepare ourselves from success, for success by learning lessons from our failures. We're going to prepare ourselves for success by learning from our failures. That's not what the story of Peter walking on the water is actually about. Searching this message on failure, I stumbled across some stories from a book called America's Dumbest Criminals. Wild and weird stories of fumbling felons, clumsy crooks, and ridiculous robbers by Daniel Butler. Alan Ray and Leland Gregory. Let me share with you a few true stories from this book, humorous failures, before we look at Peter's failure. First story, when the robber from Pensacola, Florida entered a liquor store to hold it up, he found too many people around. So he switched to plan B, fishing in his pocket for a piece of paper, he scrawled a note demanding money. The cashier quickly handed over all the money in the drawer, and the man was out the door in a flash. He seemed to have pulled off the perfect, flawless robbery with precision, except for one thing. He had written the note on the back of a letter from his probation officer, complete with his own name and address. (laughs) Fail. One day, an apartment complex maintenance man in Virginia Beach, Virginia, decided to supplement his income by robbing a 7-Eleven store. He wore a ski mask and made his voice deep. He ordered, give me all the money. Staring, the clerk handed it over. When the police arrived, they asked the 7-Eleven employee to describe the robber. Quote, he was wearing a ski mask, said the clerk, and a blue maintenance uniform. On the front of the uniform was the name of an apartment complex and the name, the man's name tag. The two officers looked at each other. Surely not. Surely not. 
But when they appeared at the maintenance man's apartment, he hadn't even changed clothes. The ski mask was in his back pocket, the money in his front pocket. Fail. Epic fail. Last one. We got a call that a woman's purse had been stolen. Recalls Detective Chris Stewart of Brunswick, Georgia. A short time later, we saw a man who fit the description the victim gave us. So we picked him up and took him back to the scene of the crime. Stewart explained to the suspect that when they arrived, he was to exit the vehicle and face the victim for a positive ID. The suspect did exactly as he had been told. He stepped from the car, looked at the victim, and blurted out, Yeah, that's her. That's the woman I robbed. That's the woman I robbed. Fail! Failure. (laughs) We need to learn from our failures. Lessons from failures. My dad and mom raised me by quoting Numbers chapter 32 verse 23 to me over and over and over and over and over again. My dad was the assembly God preacher my whole life and he kept saying, be sure your sins will find you out. How many of you heard that when you were growing up? Every good Pentecostal kid say, amen. Be sure your sins. My dad would tell me, be sure your sins will find you out. Our scripture text, we're going to see one of these failures. We're going to contextualize it. We're going to look at it in its proper context. And we're going to see that that it was this event. Actually, you're not going to put it in its proper context. And I'll demonstrate that now. If you have your Bible, open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. I'll begin at verse 22. And I'll tell the story in its full context. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the, on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, It is a ghost! And so they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But... When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. That's right. That's right. The story is about Jesus. Jesus is the main character. He's the hero. Peter has a small supporting role in this. But the punchline is that when he got into the boat, they worshiped Jesus saying, truly, you are the son of God. This was a miracle that shows Christ's deity. And everybody who tells this story in evangelicalism focuses in on Peter. And Peter's the one 
Well, yeah, it was pretty bold of him to ask Jesus to have him come out to him, was it not? Yes, it surely was. But before Peter had the opportunity to get too big for his britches, he started to sink. Because even he had doubts. And Jesus saves him. Oh, why did you doubt, oh, you of little faith? He doesn't say no faith. He says little faith, little faith. And he saves Peter. And the punchline is Jesus. Jesus was the one who was walking on the water. He walked all the way from the shore out to the boat in the middle of the storm. And they thought it was a ghost. And Peter says, well, if it's you, have me walk out to you. And he says, come, he goes out. And sure enough, it's Jesus. And he sees the sea and the winds and the waves. And he's freaking out. And he starts to sink and Jesus saves him. And they get in the boat and the disciples worship Jesus. This story isn't in here to tell you how to overcome or learn from your failures so that you can set yourself up for success. This story really hearkens you to ask who is this Jesus fellow that he walks on waters, uh, that he walks on the water that that the he causes the weather to go from terrible to clear. Who is this one? Well, as the disciples said, he's truly the son of God. And they worshipped him. And if you don't, you should repent and trust in him and worship him the way they did. Why? Because he truly is the Son of God, and that's the whole point of this story. But that's not what we're going to hear from Tiffany Fellowship in Kansas City, Missouri. We continue. His failure in the life of Peter, which really established him to become one of the greatest and the leading apostles of his day and his era. And I believe the leader, the first leader of the Christian church here on earth. It was in these failure moments that Peter learned the lessons that were going to catapult him to apostolic success. Stand with me. We stand in honor of the word of God. So we're going to read our scripture text again. Matthew 14, verses 22 through 32. I'm reading from the New International Version, 11, year 2011. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. The wind died down when they climbed in the boat. This is God's word. Can you say amen to it? No, I can't because you missed the punchline. You, you literally intentionally cut it out. You, you end the story with, and the wind died down. The next sentence reads, and those in the boat worship Jesus saying, truly you are the son of God. 
You're taking a story about Jesus and making it about Peter. You're taking, and by making it about Peter, then you can make it about us. But the story isn't about us. It's about Jesus being the Son of God and worshiping him. And you intentionally X'd that out, and yet you said you believe in verbal plenary inspiration, yet you show that you don't because you're you're twisting and monkeying with God's word. You say you were going to put this and show it in its proper context, and you ripped out the punchline. This is no way to handle God's word, nor is it any way to preach it, because we're supposed to preach Christ, not ourselves. To our hearing and more importantly to our obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The thesis statement of last week's message was, you can't have an extraordinary life while sitting fearfully or lazily in the boat. The story isn't about anybody having an extraordinary life, whether or not they're sitting in a boat or sleep in a boat or anything of the sort. This isn't a story about us having extraordinary lives. This is about Jesus being the Son of God. Have an extraordinary life while sitting fearfully or lazily in the boat. I believe with all my heart. That God created us, God created you to live an extraordinary life. God wants you to not live. And where in the Bible does it say that? It doesn't say that in this text. This text is about Jesus. What an extraordinary man he is. He's the Son of God. Vanilla life. But to live an extraordinary life, you have at your Command at your disposal, all the ingredients, all the destiny, all the purpose of God to live an extraordinary life. I believe that with all my heart. But that requires taking a step. That requires taking a step out of the boat and water walking with Jesus. No, it doesn't. The Bible doesn't teach us anything about steps that we have to take in order to have extraordinary lives. Scripture tells us to repent of our sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins because he bore all of our sins upon himself on the cross. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. The fact that he is God, the fact that this miracle of Jesus walking on the water shows that he truly is the Son of God is something that we can take comfort in. And now you're telling us, oh, this is all about you've got to do this and you've got to do that. There's no, there's nothing in the passage that tells me to do anything other than trust in Jesus and worship him as the Son of God. That's the true application of this text. You're not going to have that kind of an extraordinary life by staying in the boat all the time and playing it safe. Mark Batterson in his great new book called All In asks this question, and I quote, and I've got it on the multimedia screen. When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? It's time to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. And yet Jesus said the one who endures to the end will be saved. Weird, huh? Think about that. It's time to quit living as if the purpose of our life is to arrive safely at death.
God wants to send us. That's how we feel. Sometimes how we live. Oh, God only sent me to safe places to do easy things. That will not ever result in water walking with Jesus. There are some of you in this auditorium today who are tired of always playing it safe. There are some listening to me today on podcast or CD or internet who long for a dangerous adventure with Jesus. You might have, have to be helped back into the boat sopping wet, but who cares? I defy any disciple, disrespect any apostle who stayed in the boat and laughed at or criticized a waterlogged and soggy Peter for his foolish water walk with Jesus. I defy any, any apostle and I disrespect any disciple who sat there and went, look at weirdo Peter. Sure, he got in the bone, he was wet. Sure, his hair, he's in a bad hair day. Had that wet, just got out of the baptismal tank look to him. So what? Anyone who mocked him, anyone who laughed at him, anyone who criticized him, he could have come back at him and said, yeah. For a while there, I was walking on water with Jesus. While the rest of you losers... Stayed in the boat where it's high and dry and safe. Safe. Listen to me. Everyone fails. Everyone fails. Everyone. Not some, not most, everyone. We've all failed. The Bible says all fall short of the glory of God. We all fail. But only a few bold, courageous, sometimes impulsive, audacious, daring, valiant people have the guts to give water walking a try. To give water walking a try. And I can only imagine the kind of faith it took to tell Jesus, whom you just thought a moment ago was a ghost, to help you water walk. That must have taken uncommon courage. Peter, listen to me, Peter must be respected for that kind of faith. Just got to give it to him. Just got to hand it to him. I can't wait to get to heaven to see Peter. Yeah, I'm thinking about respecting Jesus for having the power to do all of that. You know, walk from shore all the way out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm and then cause the storm to cease with a word. I mean, that's some pretty amazing stuff on the part of Jesus, don't you think? Man, he made some mistakes. Man, he did some things. (laughs) But he walked on water. Because he had the audacity to go, if that's really you, tell me to come to you. But what do we do when our faith fails? And it sometimes does. Sometimes does. What do we do when having started a faith walk, we begin to lose heart? What do we do when, as Peter did, we take our eyes off of Jesus? Today I want to make four observations. Yeah, you've already taken your eyes off of Jesus in the telling of this story because you X'd out the part where they actually worshipped him and said he's the son of God because he's the punchline of the story. Talk about taking your eyes off Jesus. You're not even aware that you're doing it. Peter's sinking experience. Real quickly, four observations about Peter's sinking failure experience. Real quick, number one. First observation, he focused 
on his circumstances. Peter failed because he obsessed about his circumstances. No, it says that he began to sink because he didn't have faith. He started to doubt. That's what Jesus said. I'm going to go with Jesus. And since the story's about Jesus, this whole idea of what you're doing here is ridiculous because now you're turning into steps that we've got. See, we can learn from Peter's mistakes because if we can figure out what he did wrong, then we can apply the right thing so that we can water walk. I'd like to actually see you try for real. You observe this from his safe place high and dry in the boat. And he wrote about it. He said, when Peter saw the wind, he began to sink. Oh, great. Thanks, Matthew. (laughs) Brilliant deduction sitting in the boat. Probably jealous thinking, wish I had the guts to do that. He focused on his circumstances. Let me tell you something, friends. It's really hard to walk on water when you're obsessed with your own personal circumstances. And now we're not actually talking about really walking on water. It's Now we've turned it into something you can actually do. This is a metaphorical walking on water. When Jesus actually pulled it off. And some of us are. All we can think about is the situation we find ourselves in. Let me say three things about this quickly. First of all, we must not ignore our circumstances. That's denial. Never ignore your circumstances. But here's the principle. We must trust Jesus in spite of our circumstances. Don't ignore them. That's denial. But we must trust Jesus in spite of our circumstances. That's faith. And and we have a little motto around here at Tiffany Fellowship, and you might see a couple of t-shirts even this morning here. Living from the inside out. We at Tiffany Fellowship, we want to live from the inside out, not from the outside in. We don't want to live our life based on the circumstances we see around us, but we want to live our life based on the God and the Holy Spirit that lives within us, working his way out into the circumstances of our life, from the inside out. In 1858, Abraham Lincoln lost to Stephen A. Douglas in the Illinois Senate race. Despite the circumstances of his defeat, he refused to focus on his loss. He wrote to an old friend on December 12th, 1858, 1858, and he said, and I quote, I have an abiding faith that we shall beat them in the long run. And and that's the equivalent of water walking, right? Two years later, Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States. I have an abiding faith that we shall beat them in the long run. Peter had a temporary setback because he focused on his circumstances. But in the long run. No, because he began to doubt Jesus. That's what Jesus said. Why are you contradicting Jesus? And why aren't you pointing me to Jesus? Why are you pointing me to Peter? He lived an extraordinary life. Secondly, sometimes the circumstances are our own making. Sometimes the circumstances are of our own making. See, Peter was not assured of success just because Jesus said, come. I think I should say that again. I think we need to understand that. Peter was not guaranteed success just because Jesus said, come. In fact, we see something very, very different happen. Jesus had come and Peter came and he had a good beginning. 
He created his own crisis with this lack of faith. And Jesus reached out and grabbed him and said, Hey, Peter, a little faith. Like the person who believes God to deliver them during a financial crisis but continue their foolish spending habits. Like the person who believes God will heal them from lung cancer but continues to smoke four packs of cigarettes a day. Like the man who asked God to help him overcome sexual temptation and yet continues to look at pornography. Sometimes we create our own circumstances and we expect God to bail us out. I'm so glad that Emily and the worship team led us in the song Amazing Grace because God's grace is there to help us when we fail and when we fall. Uh, yeah, that's right, but it's that's kind of like really understating it. God's grace is what saves us because God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. It's because of God's grace that Jesus died for our sins. He, Jesus didn't die for the things we do good. He died for every single one of our rebellious sins against him. So, yeah, grace has something to do with that for sure. But our circumstances are quite often of our own making. Three, bad circumstances make for great miracles. Bad circumstances make for great miracles. It's time that the... How are you seeing any of this in Matthew 14? I, 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 it just absolutely boggles the mind that you're seeing any of this in there because... Oh, that's right. Because when you remove Jesus as the punchline of the story, you you can insert anything you want into the text. And that's what you're doing. Listen to me. We are not doing business as usual. In one way or another, we're walking on water. Here at Tiffany Fellowship, we're walking on water. It's not only exciting, it's dangerous. We're created to facilitate miracles. We're called to exploits. We're expected to spiritually impact this community. We have a global mission. Can you show me the biblical passages for that list you just rattled off? It sounds very dubious to me. And when children are born severely premature, we don't just say, oh, well... We believe God for miracles and we pray for healing. We stand on the promises of God and we see God come through because we're, we're in a water walking expedition. No, we are not on a water walking expedition. I had an opportunity yesterday to listen to Pastor Kendra's message from when I was in Gettysburg. I, I was sick, too sick during the week to listen. I tried to listen a couple times. I, I listened to it yesterday. I got so excited just reliving that miracle again. As I listened to her story of God's faithfulness as she walked on water with Jesus. And you and I were there for that. We were there when the Moreno family were water walking with Jesus with Bryce. And there are many people, listen to me, there are people out in this congregation today, you're still in the boat But you need to get out and walk on water with Jesus. You've got that sickness. You've got that setback. You've got that area in your life. Listen to me. Don't continually. So if you have a sickness or a setback in your life, you're still in the boat. Oh, man, this is terrible. And obsess about your circumstances. When Peter did that, he began to sink. 
The church isn't an institution, it's a living organism. Friends, we're not messing around around here. This is serious business, and it's priority one. We're walking on water around here, and sometimes we see the wind. We don't want to sink, we're not going to sink, so we better redirect our focus and our trust in God for a miracle. And if you. Yeah, I think you should redirect your focus and actually preach Jesus rather than yourself. I agree with you. That what we're doing around here is good. And God, then get on board. Or I guess I should say, get out board. And join us on a great water walk adventure. The next two weeks, we're going to water walk. We're going to see what God can help us to do in this world. Not just here, but around the world. That's why you see all these flags here. (laughs) Can I tell you a little story? Pastor Joey and Felina went to Springfield, Missouri to pick up these flags from the office, the general office. We had them last year. Remember they were here last year? Somehow all of the stab, the poles got cut in half this year. They're twi- they were twice this size. We started setting them up today and the flags hit the floor. Kind of takes a little bit of the... <laughs> yeah, short flags. Yeah, you got to make lemonade. Got to make lemonade. So anyway, all these colorful flags are telling you we have a mission. We're walking on water. Let's get out board. Join us on a great water walk adventure. All right, he focused on his circumstances. Number two, second observation. He fell back into old thinking patterns. He failed, I'm convinced, because he fell back into old thinking patterns. The text says, the text says that when he saw the wind, he was afraid. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. In other words, he fell back into old thinking patterns. No, the, nowhere in the text does it say anything about him falling back into old thinking patterns. The reason why he was afraid was because he doubted. That's what Jesus said. He knew it. Before he knew it, he was, he was sinking and drowning again. He, he started to fall back into old thinking patterns when he saw the wind in the wave. He didn't keep his focus on Jesus. And this is what happens to a lot of us on Saturday or Sunday. We get pumped up. We get excited. We're going to go to church. We come in here. We worship God hard. We, we sing. We feel the presence of the Spirit. We listen to the message. You know, then we go back into our regular world on Monday, all fired up, and we get slapped in the face with our circumstances. And immediately we retreat into the old thinking patterns of the past. And some of you tell me this. I know because you tell me this. You say, Pastor, when I'm in church, listening to the worship music, surrounded by my community of faith, hearing testimony of God's power, I get pumped up. But then I go to work and it all falls apart. What am I going to do? Listen, we need to crucify once and for all the old thinking patterns of the world. So there's a mention of crucifixion, but it's not Christ's crucifixion. It's you need to crucify something in you rather than Christ dying for you on the cross. Interesting. Because water walking requires, listen, it requires a new way of thinking. And yet nowhere in this text do I see tips and tricks and strategies on how you too can water walk. Thinking. Let's look quickly at three three of Peter's natural thinking patterns. Let's look back into his history. Let's look at three of his old standard thinking patterns. So we're going to psychoanalyze Peter now. Not a valid way of uh, exegeting God's word, by the way. 
relate to that. Maybe we can go, you know, I don't know on that one. The first thinking pattern of Peter, what I call been there, done that. Been there, done that. This is the old thinking pattern of experience. See, let me tell you something, friends. Past experience can be your worst enemy in water walking. Look real quick at Luke chapter four, 5, verses 4 through 6. Luke 5, 4 through 6. Here's one of Peter's old habits. When he has finished speaking, he said to Simon. Who's Simon? Simon is, the, is Peter before Jesus changed his name. Simon Peter. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Look what Peter says. He says, Master, we've worked all hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. Can you hear it in his voice? He's like, let me just get this out here so that later I can say, I told you so. But I know what's going to happen. It's like Peter saying to Jesus, you stick to preaching, I'll stick to fishing. I know fishing. It's what I do. I'm the fisherman. You're the preacher. But all right, I'll do it. When it fail, I'll tell you I told you so. <laughs> when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Those old thinking patterns, it's been there, done that. Funny that you'd mentioned that uh, passage from Luke chapter 5, because this is another one of those stories where the punchline is really about Jesus. Take a look at it. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. Now, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken in. And so also were James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. This was a miraculous catch, a fish. And Peter realized, man, Jesus could be the wealthiest man on the world, being able to pull in hauls of fish like that at, at, his, you know, at his command. And he realizes then, Jesus is not like himself. And he goes to Jesus and he says, depart from me, depart from me because I am a sinful man. Great story. It's all about Jesus isn't it? Because that's who Peter was impressed with. But no, uh, no. now we're psychoanalyzing. See if he's falling into old thinking patterns, which is preventing him from water walking. Talk about missing the point. We continue. Believing that what happens in the future is determined by what has happened in the past. These people tend to be fatalists and victims. When the going gets tough, they get all historical. 
Not hysterical, historical. Peter saw his circumstances and fell back into an old thinking pattern. Wait a minute. I've been out on this lake hundreds of times. I've never done this before. I'm going to drown. I'm the expert on the Sea of Galilee. This is where I do business. Been there, done that. Friends, let me tell you something. When you are walking on water, it requires a whole new way of thinking. Forgetting those things. Said the man who's never actually done it. Paul says, and pressing on toward what is ahead. Do not become a victim of your past. Second old thinking pattern, Peter found himself. This is what I simply call, get real. Get real. This is the old thinking pattern of the realist. And a lot of us, we don't, we don't call ourselves pessimists. We call ourselves realists. I'm neither optimistic or pessimistic. I'm a realist. I'm a rationalist. Let's look at this, Luke 8. Luke 8, 43 through 45. Here's another, here's another episode in Peter's life. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up beside, beside Jesus, behind Jesus, and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Look, look what Jesus asked. Who touched me? All the other disciples, they play it safe. I didn't do it. Not me. I didn't touch you. Not me. I didn't do it. Guess what? Here's Peter. He said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Are you kidding me? There's thousands of people touching you. Well, he couldn't keep his mouth shut like everyone else. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't touch you. I didn't touch you. The other disciples are like, if we just hide, if we just blend in, Peter will stick his foot in the mess and he'll get rebuked by Jesus and we'll all get off scot-free. Who touched? That's funny. The text doesn't mention anything about that. I mean, maybe Peter did it. What do you think, Peter? He can't keep his mouth shut. Jesus, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? Here's what, here's what Peter is saying to Jesus. Get real. There's 5,000 people crowded around, and you're asking who touched you? Get real. Yeah, and that's the story where Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. Yeah, have you ever heard of a guy raising somebody from the dead? Well, that's a pretty amazing Jesus, don't you think? I'd much rather hear about him than one of the guys who has a bit role in the story, Peter. Jesus is the hero. It's all about him. Why are you preaching, you know, focusing in on Jesus's one line in the story and not telling me about the guy who actually raised a 12 dead girl, 12-year-old dead girl back to life? Hmm. This is the thinking pattern of the realist. The realist rarely experiences the miraculous because they're too skeptical. Jesus said, I felt something good go out of me. Jesus, and Peter's like, what? And that's weird because Peter experienced all, he, at least he witnessed the miraculous all over the place. Weird, huh? Because now your metaphor, your analogy, your sermon illustration is totally breaking down in front of you. Virtue went out of me. I, I felt it. They doubt anything that's too far-fetched. Don't raise your hand, but we got any realists in the audience? 
When Peter was walking on the water and he began to see the wind, reality set in and he fell back in old thinking patterns. He became the realist and asked, what in the world am I doing? Have I lost my mind? This makes no earthly sense. Let me ask you a question. When somebody asks you to pray for them, what's your first what's your first instinct? What's your first reaction? Is it, yeah, okay, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna believe God to heal you, or is it all right, I'll pray for you, bud? No. Probably not gonna happen. What's your first instinct? When you get the email, the baby Bryce is but is born one pound eight ounces. Doctors don't give him a chance. What's your instinct? Okay, I'll pray. When the doctor said to Pastor Kendra's family, call your, call your family and say goodbye. She's, she's going to die. We've tried everything. Nothing works. She's done. What's your instinct? Uh, can I tell you I struggle in those moments too? This, this is my... Can I confess this to you? This is my bad thinking pattern. My wife is an eternal optimist. And, and, and truth be told, she, she sometimes thinks I'm a pessimist. And I defend myself by saying, no, I'm a realist. God help us. Very few realists ever walk on water with Jesus. And last time I checked, there's only one person who's ever walked on water with Jesus, and that's Peter. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is the one who really made the long haul while walking on the water. He's the one we really should be focusing the story on. Because we go, let's let Peter do it. He'll fall in the water and get wet, and we can all just laugh at him. Listen, Holy Spirit, speak to us in this moment. Because some of us need to get out of the boat. And water walk with you. Number three, third old thinking pattern. If it doesn't fit, force it. If it doesn't fit, force it. This is the old thinking pattern of aggression. Aggression. Remember the story in John chapter 10, uh, John chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, put on the multimedia screen. The Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, this Peter, his first reaction. Now, you got to let you got to cut Peter a little bit of slack because Jesus uh, the story of Peter cutting the ear off of Malchus has absolutely nothing to do with Peter's walking on the water while trusting Jesus and sinking when he begins to doubt. It has nothing to do with it. How many of you are aware of this story? Jesus kind of sets them up. Like about an hour earlier when they're getting ready to leave the upper room, Jesus looks around and goes, "How many swords we got?" And so here's Peter, ah, swords, mm -hmm. yeah, I'll get a sword. Jesus wants some sword play? All right, I'm on it. He, he needs, Jesus needs a, he needs some muscle. All right, I'm Jesus' muscle, he's calling for muscle. 
So guess what? They rush, they rush Jesus and Peter's like, I'm the bodyguard, right? This requires somebody to power up right now. Peter is classic for this thinking pattern. He's angry. He's mad. He's aggressive. See, the angry person thinks that everything can be fixed with a hammer. Did you try beating on it? Sometimes it works if you pound on it. The angry, the the aggressive think that they... That powering up is an acceptable response to everything. They, be go, they go, listen, there's a difference between being assertive. Some of us need to be more assertive. We need to assert ourselves more. There's a difference between being assertive and being aggressive. I'm not getting what I need. I'm not getting my rights. And we power up. It's an old thinking habit. The angry think that powering up is an acceptable response to everything. See, we're living in an angry, aggressive culture. And some of us have been abused. Some of us have responded in anger. Some of us have been rejected and offended. And in response, we've become aggressive. No one's going to take advantage of me again. No one's going to hurt me again. No one's going to treat me that way. No one's going to treat me that way. We've seen this modeled, some of us, by our parents. And so now we too respond to everything by powering up, getting assertive, getting angry. Can't water walk that way. Okay, these are some of the old thinking patterns. Number one, he focused on his circumstances. Number two, he fell back into old thinking patterns. Number three, third observation. He failed, not God. It's important, it's important observation to make when we look at this story. When we look at Peter's failure, he failed, not God. I'm truly glad that Peter, when he began to sink, didn't cry out some kind of accusation against Jesus. He didn't say, how could you tell me to walk on water to you and then let me sink halfway there? How could you do that to me, God? Do you know what you're doing? Yet we criticize Peter for that. But how many of us in the exact same situation are tempted to do the same thing. If I've heard it once, I've heard it at least a couple of dozen times from people, some in this congregation, who say, Pastor Barry, I know God says he'll never put more on me, more than I can take, but I'm telling you this time, he did. And I'm like, well, you're still standing here. I know, but I can't take it. But you're still here. I know, but I can't take it. But you're taking it. Yeah, but I can't take it. God doesn't care about me. God left me here. He calls me out in the water and then he dumps me in the water. It amazes me how many people find themselves in sinking situations and end up blaming God. And they ask, if God really loves me, then why is he letting this happen to me? Let me bring out two important truths to remember when failing. Number one, the universal source of all failure is sin. You're not, if you're taking notes, write that down. So, yeah, I agree with that. Maybe that's what caused you to fail so badly regarding this sermon. The source of all failure is sin. 
There was only one time when there was no failure, and that was in the Garden of Eden before man sinned. Everything was great. Everything was hunky-dory until man sinned and messed it all up. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you're sick today, it's because God is punishing you. Don't blame a good God for bad things. Stop blaming a good God for bad things. If God is so good, how can he let these disasters happen? Stop blaming a good God for bad things. He gave us dominion over the earth, and we blew it. We messed it up. And now we're blaming God. What I am saying is that all sickness, poverty, hunger, death have come as a natural consequence of thousands of years of mankind's sinfulness, not the apathy or powerlessness of God. Secondly, the universal source of all redemption is God. The universal source of all failure is sin, but the universal source of all redemption is God. Now, redemption is a word that is used in conjunction with Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our sins. You think he'll close that loop? Well, let's find out. God redeems. God gives hope to the hopeless. God provides grace for those of us who fail. Yeah, you want to elaborate on that a little clearer, please? It amazes me how the people in crisis need often crisis and need often alienate the only hope they have when they blame god they cut off their nose despite their faith they smack the hand that feeds them many times in spite of the fact that sometimes bad things happen to good people god delivers supernaturally he's not the source of evil but he is the source of hope 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 Thank goodness Peter didn't blame God. Jesus, how could you do this to me? Reaching out for Jesus, save me, and how could you do this for me? <laughs> to me. Fourth observation, I'll quit with this. He cried out the beginning of failure. See, Scripture makes an important, really, really important distinction here. He cried out at the beginning of failure. Peter didn't make the same mistake that many people make. Wait until it's too late to call out to God for help. The Scripture says, and I quote, and be... He was sinking. He was sinking. (laughs) There's no principle here. (laughs) Oh, man. (sighs) See, this is what happens. When you don't understand the text is about Jesus and you make it about yourself, you have no way to actually get at the true meaning of the text. And so all kinds of nonsense becomes the things that you find there. Think, cried out, Lord, save me. Maybe you're on a faith walk with Jesus and you're beginning to sink. It's time to get help from Jesus before it gets any worse. Maybe you've begun to focus on your circumstances instead of trusting God. And now you have begun to fall backwards into old thinking patterns. You're tempted to blame God for the situation you find yourself in. Or you feel alone, abandoned, rejected. Then do what Peter did and cry out to Jesus at the beginning of your failure. Ask him to save you and reach out for his hand right now at the beginning of your failure. Don't wait till it's too late. When the temptation becomes strong. Don't go, I got this. 
when you feel yourself slipping, go, I ain't got this. Help. Help. This sermon is not about losing your salvation. It has nothing to do with that. When Peter fell in the water, he didn't lose. I've heard some preachers go, oh, Peter lost his salvation. He backslid. No, that's not true. That's theologically incorrect. It's a fallacy. This, I've never heard anybody say that. This story is put in the scriptures to teach us about spiritual growth. No, it's there to tell us and show to us that Jesus is the Son of God and that we should repent and trust in him and worship him. That's why the next verse, the one you left out, is in there. How to grow spiritually. So let me conclude by giving you, and I'm going to ask Emily to come over and the team, we're going to sing this song one more time. What do you do when you start to sing? I want to give you five things. Real quick, five, just real quick. Five things to do when you start to sing. Here's five tangible things you can do. Number one, call out to God immediately. Just said that. At the beginning of your failure, when you feel yourself starting to sink, when you feel yourself starting to doubt, get skeptical, call out to God immediately. Number two, make a brutal self-examination. Brutal. Make a brutal self-examination. Confess and repent. Look at what you're doing. Am I making a mistake? Am I doing something wrong here? What am I doing? Am I failing? I'm going to ask our elders to come too because we're going to pray for people in a minute. Number three, don't panic when you get a little wet. Don't panic when you get a little wet. Listen. When you're water walking, listen, listen to me. When you're water walking, you might wreck a pair of good shoes. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique used by a lot of pastors to create the false impression that now God the Holy Spirit is descending on the congregation in a palpable way, ready to do business with people who are ready to make commitments and decisions. Oh, my feet are getting wet. Don't panic. Stay calm. Don't get historical or hysterical. Number four, learn from your mistakes. Learn from your mistakes. Failure can prepare you for success if you learn. Failure can prepare you for success if you learn. Why did I fail? What if, if only Peter would have looked at the wind and waves, began to sing, and go, wait a minute. Eyes back on Jesus. Eyes up here. Eyes up here. Focus, focus, focus. Brutal self-examination. Listen to me. Sometimes when we make mistakes and begin to fail, we want to blame everybody else except ourselves. We don't learn from our failure. We blame everyone else. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to continue to sink when you do that. Brutal self-examination. Don't panic. Learn from your mistakes. And number five, and this is probably the most important thing, get prepared for your next water walk. Get back on the horse. Get back on the edge of the boat. Get your feet over the edge because you're going water walking again. You can't sit in the boat and go, oh, oh. That's weird because Peter only did it once and none of the other disciples ever did it. Weird, huh? <laughs> I'll never do that again. <laughs> Because guess what? You'll never do that again. 
Let me tell you a quick story as we get ready to conclude. When I was about seven years old, my dad took me swimming in a river. I've told this story before. It applies here. I was swimming in the river. My dad was watching, and I got halfway out in the river, and there were some drop-offs. And my dad's like, don't go very far out. But I went pretty far off, and I went bloop under the water. And I'm watching fish swimming by. Couldn't breathe. I mean, I was dying. I was down. My dad ran in the water, all of his clothes on, his watch on, his wallet on, everything. And he fished me out of the river and plunked me back up on the side of the, the bank of the river. And I was coughing and spitting water out. <laughs> Let's go home, Dad. And he said, no, son. You're going back in the water. You're going to put me in there again? Yeah, because if I don't get you back in the water, you'll never go in the water ever again. You'll be permanently imprinted and you'll never go swimming again. You're going back in the water. And I went back in. To this day, I'm not afraid of the water. Some of you have gone water walking and you've fallen in the water. You got back on the boat and you're like, I'll never do that again. Oh, God, help me. I'll never do that again. No. Get back on. Get back in the boat. Start to get out again. Because it's out in the water that the fun happens. Yeah, there you go. Um, A complete butchering of the text. Omitting the important punchline. Making it about ourselves. And in the process, completely missing Jesus and who he is and that we should trust him because he is God in human flesh. He truly is the son of God who takes away the sin of the world, my sin and your sin. And not only did he walk on water, he rose bodily from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate for my sins and for yours. And he calls all of us to repentant faith trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins because he has reconciled the world to himself through his cross. None of that was preached. This wasn't a Christian sermon. It was a complete twisting of the text. And it's simply a twisting of the text by making the text about you rather than Jesus. And this is how most people read and preach this passage. And they... (laughs) Intentionally or unintentionally, it doesn't matter. They always cut out that last part about the fact that they were in awe and worshipped Jesus and said, truly you are the Son of God. That's the punchline of the story of Jesus walking on the water. All right, so what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>